0: Normally FBI and NYPD, so my squad was FBI NYPD task force. Um, two of the squads, the Gambino and the Ocasis, were out in Queens. The other three families four squads were in Manhattan. Um, and so each squad had a family. Now, there was a lot of interplay, so we, we knew everybody under the other. One. Our sister squad was the Gambino squad out in the RA. They were the Gotti squad, which was the Gambino family. And at that time... Hey, everybody. Welcome back to
1: another episode of Cold Red. I'm um, Jim Fitzgerald, Fitz for short. With me, as always, is my friend and comrade, Ray Carr, also retired Philadelphia uh, FBI, Dr. Ray Carr, he insists I call him. And huh. um, and every guest is a special guest, but our producer likes to write this up that we have a special guest tonight, and he is, and he's a friend of both of ours, uh, Bobby Chacon, retired FBI uh dive team founder of the fbi he has so many stories to tell and so much so many interesting aspects to his career we're going to try to squeeze it all in in this particular episode but uh but on top of that bobby you've done something recently that i've never done and ray have you ever sat on a jury in a homicide trial
2: no i've been on the other end all the time i've never had the chance to be on the end that bobby was on
1: yeah. Well, guess what? He was on a homicide trial. And later on, we're going to get into uh, that experience. Can you give us like 25 words for less, Bobby? Kind of a teaser summing it up for our audience. What was it like? Six, fact, five months, right?
0: Yeah. You know, 27 years in law enforcement and a lawyer. I have my law degree as well. So both of those things normally keep me off a jury. And for somehow, and the defense did have preemptory challenges. They could have gotten rid of me, um, but they decided to keep me on. And You know, I mean, look, I was fair and I was I was just as impartial as any other juror, I like to think. Um, So, yeah, we can go into that. I knew one other agent
1: in New York. He was actually still an agent in New York living in Jersey, and he was brought on. And uh, as a jury member there, I don't think it was a homicide. It may have been a a civil matter, but that's pretty rare. Uh, They like the older, retired folks that maybe don't have the professional backgrounds, most most defense attorneys anyway, but we'll get more into that as we go along. But uh, but again, Bobby, thanks for showing up. We're on a text kind of uh, thread together and we comment on different things. We do like uh, we do like to talk a little bit about current events. And, uh, Bobby, I know you're you've commented on the news. And by the way, you're on um, all the different news channels uh, when when it works in your schedule. But uh, just yesterday we had a leak of the Nashville um uh, at least part of the Nashville, they keep calling it manifesto. I know manifestos. This is more of a journal, a diary. Maybe there's more coming of it. But Bobby, let me start with you. Just a few uh, bullet points. What I know you read at least those three pages. What do you think about it?
0: Yeah, I think it was it was uh, the little bit we know that was leaked. And there's a lot more from what I understand. There's a lot more journals on his on his laptop, her laptop, I actually don't even know which way to refer to them, but, um, but okay. the laptops and there's many more journals, um, but what was leaked seems to be a highly agitated, angry person, angry at white people and rich people. Um, it seemed to be kind of a, a class race kind of warfare type of, uh, diatribe that yeah. the, the parts that I read, um, you know, uh, you know, there are people in this country that want to divide us by race and by class. And and it seemed like this poor person, not poor person, but this person who was suffering from obviously some mental defect um, uh, was was manipulated by that narrative and, and took violent action based on on that narrative, because it talks about crackers, which is obviously a derogatory term for white people. It talks about you khaki wearing white faggots. Um, And obviously, this is rich, rich people like it's it's strewn throughout the things that I've seen so far that this was a person that was, you know, very much tied up into the race and class warfare.
1: Ray, I want to hear your uh, your information, too, and this or your opinions. Bobby, do you think this whole thing uh, minus addresses and names, do you think the rest of it should be published and get it out there for other people to look at?
0: Absolutely. I mean, in, in almost every other case, it is. And I think that they've held on to this long enough, saying that it's an active investigation. Well, I think you need to tell the people how it's an active. Show us why, because I think that's a disingenuous reason. And and I think that you need to show us how, now that it's starting to get released, and maybe it'll all come out. Tell us how it was, an active investigation. Tell me what part of this thing that's now released was part of an active What were you doing actively that the public couldn't benefit because it's all it all benefits the public when we know more about somebody that does something like this we learn okay. whether we could do we can help people like this in the future things like that you know and like i said in every almost every other case they are released so what about this particular case and this particular journal was such an investigative value to you that you kept it you know, because people have to sue. There's still lawsuits to release this information. And yeah. and they've always hid behind the active investigation. Well, now it's time to prove what part of it is. And if it wasn't, then someone was lying to the public and someone needs to be held accountable.
1: I agree with that. Um, I agree. Whoever, whoever the deep throat is in the Nashville criminal justice system, going mm-hmm. back to, of course, the uh, Watergate reference there, I'll say it out loud. Thank you. And uh, we'll see if more comes. And also, if there's gonna be an investigation as to who is the leaker, maybe if we're lucky it'll be the same team that investigated the road decision leakage uh from uh, a year or so ago uh because i never I never went anywhere but uh Ray, any
2: closing comments on this whole nashville thing i do uh you know you talk about leakage um that's exactly what this journal is I mean the date of the journal is february third the date of the shooting is march twenty seventh that's fifty two days or more than seven weeks. You can't tell me in that time period that although you're espousing this in writings, that you're not also espousing it on social media, you're telling your friends, your parents. People know Pete, this behavior isn't something she didn't wake up on the on the 27th of March or he didn't wake up on the 27th of March and say, hey, I think today I'm going to become a mass killer. I'm going to go to this school and just start shooting people. I hate these type of people. Now, this is this is what's building you know, there's always a pathway to violence and the leakage is there and people ignore the warning signs. And yeah, they well, ignore I, them here.
0: Yeah, Ray. You know, and, and I forgot to mention that I've seen where, even in the journal, it says, I should have been caught numerous times, especially in the summer of, I think, 2020 or 2021. Yes. It, what does that mean? Mentions that. And so yeah. the word and now, it's further leaking out that the police had been to this person's house. The principal knew that this person posed a threat. This person, the shooter, was actually caught previously, several times, in the school parking lot with weapons. With weapons. And they either lost their nerve and didn't go through with it. But that person, who ultimately wound up being the shooter, had been previously caught in the parking lot of that school with weapons. And so I think that maybe they're holding on to all this because they realize somebody is going to have to account for this.
2: Well, we're seeing a pattern. Look at Parkland. Look at Nashville. Look at Maine. There has been warning signs all the way through and through. The police have responded to all of these instances and did not do anything. Now, I don't have all the information, so I'm not gonna crucify the cops in this, but we need to do a better job at recognizing this behavior and dealing with it. We really do.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a shame because I think in the end, people look at these as problem kids and we should try to help them as much as possible. And And up until they've committed a crime, which a a lot of times is the actual big event itself. But like you said, there's leakage beforehand. There's this, you know, if they they had access to weapons, that should have been curtailed. That should have been cut off. If they, you know, maybe they, maybe we have to start considering more um, involuntary um, institutionalization of people beyond a 72-hour hold. I mean, the laws need to change so that the law enforcement, because look, everything rolls downhill. They're failed by their parents, they're failed by the school, they're failed by social services, and the uniformed cop is the last person in line. And and they have to deal with it then ultimately, right? At a school while the bullets are flying. And so all these failures, they can hide behind their bureaucratic administrations, but the cop in the street is the guy that actually has to deal with it. And 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 so I think that there needs to be tools of those, you know, if those bureaucrats are gonna hide behind, then need we need to be given tools to better kind of take these people out of these situations.
2: Yeah, you know, I and I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I really get tired of hearing people saying we need to curtail the guns, we need to take the guns off the street. It it's ju- it's a it's a misnomer and really this is not a gun problem, this is a mental health problem. And we need to start dealing with that. I don't know why we're not. I mean, how many times do we have to see these things happen before we stand up and start dealing with the real issues here? I mean, you could put a gun. You can lay a gun. You can have a gun that sits on a table for weeks and it doesn't do anything until somebody picks it up.
0: <laughs> and we've know? seen attacks before. I mean, look, we saw knife attacks, eleven people killed, I think, in the UK. Yeah. We saw a truck attack in France where they used a, a, a rental truck to mow down yeah. five people. People that are hell bent on violence and, and 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 hurting other people, they'll find a way. You have to. You have to get the person. Out of that situation, if it's an institution, if it's in jail, whatever it is, you have to get the person because if they're not, if they don't have access to guns, they have access to something else that's going to hurt somebody, a knife, a truck, whatever it is, they're going to find a way. I mean, Oklahoma City happened without a gun, okay? that was, There was no gun in Oklahoma City.
2: That's true. That's true. You know, they, they call these people active shooters, and really what they should be calling them is active assailants because they're not just using guns like you just said. They're using knives, axes, uh, bombs. They're using uh, yeah. trucks. 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 There's yeah. all these different types of things. Yeah.
1: So, um, we all agree this thing should be released. So, the motivation of these types of future shooters, to me, the investigation is solved. I get it. They got to tie up some loose ends. Who are they talking to? Where did she get the weapons? Whatever. But we also want to know more about the motivation. Certainly, as a behavioralist, I want to know what. Drives people. I don't care if they're part of the mass culture or if they're little parts of the subculture that this person may have been in. And maybe some people were afraid to kind of uh, tap her on the shoulder and saying, You're doing something wrong. And we have to talk to you and institutionalize you because she had some protection that, for whatever reason, society seems to be giving certain people now. But when it comes to guns and violence, there's absolutely no excuse for that. So, I, I think the three of us are in, in agreement there. So, uh, so I do appreciate that, Bobby. Let's let's turn to you and your career. We kind of like to walk our audience through uh, the early days of our folks. Now, you come from a law enforcement family. You grew up in was it Queens, New York? Oh, uh, Long Island. Long Island, okay, just along, uh, not far from Queens. Right. Give us a little bit of your background, your family situation, and because eventually you wound up in the FBI, but give us a little uh, pathway there to your success.
0: Yeah, I mean, all four of my grandparents were born in, in Europe two in Italy, one in uh, Spain, and one in Ireland. And, um, you know, my parents were first generation, they were from Queens. Um, and as happened back then, you know, as you got a, a job and you started a family, you moved out to Long Island, it was cheaper, you could get a house with a yard. And my dad was NYPD. My mom was a nurse. Um, My brother became NYPD. My sister became a nurse. So they followed the parents, you know, those two are like kind of legacy law enforcement is a legacy. And so is kind of nursing, uh, you know? And so, um, yeah, so I grew up on Long Island. I, you know, I was the third of four kids, uh, very classic suburban upbringing, nothing special, middle-class, working-class neighborhood on Long Island. Um, and then I did well in school. I just happened to be the third of four. And so I, my, my brother and sister um, kind of you know, broke all the rules ahead of me. And so I was the good kid. And I did well in school. And um, I got a scholarship, a full, full uh, scholarship from the Navy to study nuclear engineering at Georgia Tech. I graduated high school at 16. I went to Georgia Tech. I was young, too young, actually, in retrospect. Um, so I studied nuclear engineering and had every intention of going into the nuclear Navy. It was 1980. Ronald Reagan had just been elected. Um, the defense budgets were ballooning, um, so engineers and anybody but the Navy was was getting many many job offers and and stuff. And so, um, you know, I walked through the NROTC office first day, and there's John. Uh, there's a picture of um, uh, President Carter, who had just left office, because people don't know. People always associate Jimmy Carter with the Naval Academy, um, but he was he was a transfer to Annapolis. He actually did his first two years at Georgia Tech. He was an engineering student at Georgia Tech, Jimmy Carter. And then he transferred to Annapolis. And then so Jimmy Carter's pictures on one wall. And then the other wall was um, John Young, who was the first shuttle pilot. He was an aeronautical engineer at Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. And he was the first shuttle pilot. Um, So the space shuttle was happening. And so it was really a heyday of engineering, the defense budgets. And and really, I was right in the middle of that. I was in the Navy. I, I did a couple of my summer tours on ships. But in the end, the academics were too rigorous for me. Um, graduating high school early didn't give me the opportunity to get my advanced placement courses in math and science that I needed to succeed in that rigorous nuclear engineering program. Um, And so I transferred to the University of South Florida, uh, where my parents had relocated to in Tampa, uh, got my business degree, went back up to New York, got my law degree at Hofstra University out on Long Island, um, which you know very well because you've been there. Mm -hmm. I do, I do. <laughs> and um and then I went right into the FBI. I actually took the NYPD test. I was on the list to go on NYPD. My brother was a few years ahead of me on the job. And um I had every intention to go in NYPD and then I kind of the FBI came around at a career day. Um so I was a little interested. I talked to my dad. Um and I went to visit my dad. My parents in Florida had a long talk with my dad and my dad's actually the one that um steered me into the FBI. He goes you'll you'll He goes the feds You'll be, it'll be more varied. You'll have, um, you know, probably a little better money, a little more travel, a little more, you know, a little more variety. He was afraid that, um, that I'd get bored. Uh, I wouldn't have, I would have loved the career in NYPD, but my dad's the one that kind of encouraged me. Um, And, you know, my dad was, he was a cop in the sixties and seventies. You know, it was a turmoil time. He went through the nap commission, NYPD, the nap commission was really, you know, Serpico and all that kind of stuff. He right. was a little soured, I think, my dad, at, towards the end of his career. Um, and uh, and so he 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 said, go with the feds. It'll probably be a little bit of a better uh, course. And, you know, and then I, I enjoyed every day of 27 years I spent in the FBI. Great friendships, you know, and, and professional uh, collaborations.
1: Bobby, before we move on to FBI, you told me uh, a few months ago of a very moving story uh, about uh, your father while on the NPD, NYPD. And I think your mother got a phone call or knock at the door. Can you walk our audience through that?
0: Yeah, so this was in the early 70s. I was probably 10 or 11 or 12 years old. And I remember because the way our house was, I, my room was right next to my parents' room on the first floor. My sister's and brother were upstairs. Um, and um, my dad was part of a unit, special unit in the NYPD. So at this point in time, I remember cops were being executed. The SLA and a couple of these uh, black radical groups were actually executing cops. Um, black cops, white cops, no matter what. And and I think they had six officers executed in a short period of time. So, um, you know, my dad was on this special unit going after these really hardcore, radical um, black militant groups. And, um, you know, here I am a 10 or 11 year old kid. Now, remember that um, uh, there's no cell phones and there's no, you know, even the neighborhoods yeah. my dad worked, the, 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 the pay phones were all broken and stuff. And so, you know, and and I'll tell you just to back up a little bit. I get triggered a little bit. I was triggered in in two thousand eight, I think it was. Remember, it, it, actually in Philly, um, the uh, the two Black Panther types standing outside a, a voting uh, hall, a polling place. They yeah, were holding their weapons. The, yeah, the weapons, the black leather, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. Yep. That was a trigger for me because those were the kind of people that I had in my mind that were killing the cops ultimately, and. Um, you know, and, I, and I've and i had other triggers like that. BLM, when all that BLM started, you saw some people like that. Yeah. Um, and so as an 11 or 12-year-old kid, I remember one night, um, we're on the 11 o'clock news and I'm almost in bed and my mom's watching and they it comes over the, the news that two police officers were shot and killed that night. Now, that's all they give. And they say, you know, they give the whole, whole tried and true. We're not identifying the officers pending notification of next of kin, right? And so you know, <laughs> it, it, um, so this is 10, 11 o'clock at night, probably. And my mom, I can hear my mom crying and then she gets a phone call and I hear her talking, but it's muffled. And, and it turned out to be one of the other wives of somebody in my dad's unit. And she said, I haven't heard. Have you heard? So all the wives are now calling each other. Have you heard anything? And there's no, there's no cell phone. Nobody's calling. And, and, you know, and so, you know, you could hear, I could remember hearing the clock ticking on the wall, tick, tick, one thirty, two a.m., three a.m., waiting and and not knowing if the next phone call is going to be my dad or it's going to be a knock at the door with notification next to kin because we know it takes a few hours, you know, for them to happen and they get out, they have to drive out to Long Island. So you're standing there. I remember laying in bed, eyes wide open. My siblings, by the way, were upstairs sleeping because they didn't hear most of this. My mom had the TV on in her room, and I was next door. And, um, I could hear her crying and sobbing and, and I just laid there. The fear was palpable. I can still, it still kind of bothers me to this day. And, um, just the clock ticking and knowing it, it, there's either going to be a doorbell ring or a phone ring and either one could be bad news. And ultimately, you know, I don't know, it was probably three thirty-four in the morning that my dad was able to get to a phone back at the station house and, and call my mom. But, and then I could hear my mom. <laughs> Talk to my dad i get choked up a little bit even thinking about but like i can remember my mom and then i knocked on the door she didn't even know i was still awake and then i and then she grabbed me and we had this huge embrace and she was crying and breaking down and and it was just it was just one of those life moments man that 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 i still remember and then you know like they said when i saw those two guys standing outside that polling place in philly You know it 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 is it bothers me it bothers me you know because of that because these guys were out there killing cops and and my dad was right in the middle of it luckily you know nothing happened but you know he was on the scene you know we i later found out he was on the scene of those two cops that were killed and he was doing you know everything that they needed to do so calling home you know it's just not a priority at that point you know what i mean it it is but it isn't um you know he he had it in his mind the minute he could get to a phone he was going to make that call but but when you're in the middle of it and two cops are laying there with their heads blown off, you know, I mean cops are cop you know, it's there's there's other priorities right away and stuff. And so um yeah, so that was um that was a pretty that was one of those life events that you never forget.
1: Wow. Wow. No no happy ending because two officers of course were killed, but at least within your household you had the privilege of your dad and yeah your yeah. mother's husband coming home that pretty night. Much- of course, your siblings are upstairs. They didn't know a thing, but that's no, probably a good thing.
0: <laughs> they didn't know any till the uh, next morning when my dad walked in the door. My mom and him had this huge embrace, and then you know, uh, then they found out through the news. Because then my parents were, you know, my dad came home, and then my mom went to work as a nurse. She worked the day shift, and dad worked the night shift. So they kind of tag-teamed, and then mom, would she had just enough time to give us breakfast and run to work. Dad got us ready for school, and then he went to sleep. Uh, you know, while we were at school, he slept. Now, it it may
1: be a little different today with cell phones, but I guarantee you there are wives and spouses and husbands of police officers out there that they may hear something went down and they still have to wait an hour, maybe even two, until someone calls. And they may be calling their spouse's cell phone, but for whatever reason, just like your dad, he was working the case, maybe still protecting himself, quite frankly, and his colleagues. So, uh, So we like to give, again, there's no real... This is not a good story per se, but we like to let people out there know this is the life of a law enforcement officer. This is the life of his or her family. And uh, defund the police and, you know, uh, all cops are bastards, all this stuff you hear about. These are human beings. And, uh, and you know, here's the son of a police officer. And, and later, uh, you know, FBI, we're going to get into that. But, Ray, I mean, I just uh, we've had a few uh, of our guests on tell us stories somewhat similar to that uh, one way or the other. And I think it's very moving, and I hope, I hope it translates well to the, our audience out there that how difficult it is to be a family member of a police officer.
2: Well, I said this before. I'll say it again, and I'll say it over and over again. Um, we have the only job as law enforcement officers, other than firefighters and, and, and the U.S. military, where when we walk out the door in the morning, our family doesn't know if we're coming back. You know, and that's a really true statement. Every single day we walk out, even us as FBI agents, we weren't succumbed to some of the uh, dangers every day, day in and day out that, that the uh, the local city police and the local police are because they're making those high risk stops and going to domestic violence calls. But you know, we still had the dangerous situations, but we just don't know. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's, that, that's it's, the thing. You're
0: right, Ray. It's not, it's not that – so obviously FBI agents get killed at a, at a smaller rate than – But 100% of us face the same danger. Absolutely. That's the thing. 100% of us, like you said, every FBI agent, almost every – unless they've got desk duty and they're working a, a violation that doesn't require that. But most of us um, – you know, walk out the door every day with that danger. I mean, I worked drugs and gangs for a number of years. I we'll mean, you all worked those violations that were were that right? my, my wife still remembers me, you know, putting on Sweetest. her vest at, at three in the morning and leaving the house because, you know, informant said there's a deal going down and we, we have to yep. rally the troops and stuff. It's just nature of the business. Um, you, you forget about it a little bit and, and it becomes um, it becomes almost instinctive to us but, you know, we, we have to remember our families back home because they're not.
2: I, I agree. I know running out in the middle of the night phone call comes in you're sitting down 9 30 10 o'clock at night you're finally relaxing phone call comes in you're back out the door mm-hmm. and you don't come home till the next morning when everybody's getting up on school yeah i get it i get it yeah
1: so bobby uh what year are we talking uh you law, law degree applied to the bureau and you're at Quantico. when are we talking what year
0: 1987 so i started law school in 85 i did it in two years it's usually a three-year program but i did law school in two years um, finished in 85 87 um, I literally graduated law school august of 87 and entered the FBI academy in september of 87 like three weeks later i had applied early on like two years a year and a half before right the, the background investigation and stuff uh, so they were doing all that while I was in law school and then it, the timing just worked out perfectly for me um and uh, they had a cl- they had a slot ready for me I got the call i think in may or june that I had a class um 87 18 and um, and so I finished in August, and I took two weeks vacation, and then I went to Quantico september thirteenth nineteen eighty seven eighty seven eighteen
1: and that's right around when the bureau was starting. You could go back to New York City. is that what you did
0: right, that's right, so back then, uh you couldn't go back to the office you processed through process meaning where you applied and where they did all of your basic paperwork uh most of the time that was where you lived. And so you couldn't go back to the office where you processed through. Um, that was the general rule. In, in New York was the exception back then, at, at the time when I was in the Chronicle, because it was so hard to staff. And people would, you know, do two or three years in a small office, say St. Louis, and then they would be transferred to New York. The cost of living was so high. You know, the wives didn't like it. You know, whatever reason. And so you had a lot of people quitting when they got transferred to New York. So they had to kind of figure out a way to incentivize people to go to New York. So the first thing they did was say, well, anybody from New York that wants to go back because your family's there and whatever, you can go back. And that was the first thing. This was before they had some financial incentives. They said, if anybody wants to go back to New York and you process through New York, we'll lift that policy restriction and you can go back to New York. And so I think five of us from my class um, put in to go back to New York. And so In Quantico, there's this kind of um, tradition that about the eighth week mark, about the halfway through your training, you get your first office of assignment, where you're going to go when you graduate Quantico. And if you have no idea where it is, they ask you to put your preferences down, but nobody really put too (laughs) much credence in the fact that they listen to what you you know? And so, so everybody puts Tampa and Phoenix, like these small offices that have great style of living, standard of living. But, um, so- everybody gets it and they make you open the envelope in front of the whole class and go, Oh, I'm going to Anchorage or I'm going to whatever. And, and it's a shock to people. They don't have any idea, but the five of us that chose New York, we were, we were kind of, you know, we knew where we were going. So they made us get up there and read it, but everybody kind of laughed because we knew we had requested to go back to New York. And, you know, you were guaranteed at that point to go back to New York. So um, I knew where I was going.
2: Let me ask you this. There was a rumor and tell me if this rumor was true uh i came in in the late 80s probably a little bit longer than the year after you uh early 80 i was 89 too but uh a lot of the guys it was the same thing if you want to go to new york you can go to new york but when i got my first when i got my uh my orders to buffalo it wasn't new york but it was western new york but they would talk about agents in new york that were being coming out of the academy and even agents that had been there for a couple of years That were on food stamps. They couldn't afford to uh, live in the city. They had to move way out. Some were living in Pennsylvania uh, so that they could afford and travel. Jim, you were one of those. But is that true? Were there really agents on food stamps?
0: I had heard that, too. I had heard it about San Francisco. And the way I heard it was that, you know, there's there's an income level right below which you qualify for food stamps. And I mean, back then, I don't know what the Bureau, I mean, it was 35,000, 37,000. It was like a a new agent, GS10, you know, agent or something, some crazy low number. Um, And uh, I think that in New York and San Francisco, whatever that starting salary was for agents um, was below that line that you could qualify for food stamps, um, I think. Um, But then shortly after I got there, they started incentivizing it in other ways. We got the COLA, we got a housing allowance, but you're right. A lot of guys I know lived out in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, was a very yep. common place for New York agents to live. So that's, people have to understand, that's three states. That's two states away. So you're traveling, one, you live in one state, you're traveling through another to work in a third. So that's three states, basically, you're traveling. Yep. Through, every day, you're traveling through three states to get to work and back. Um, that's, quite, sure. that's quite a, a, a burden.
2: And it that is.
1: was, uh, my, my benefit was I never had to move because I was a cop in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So I raised my hand for New York and, uh, and, and luckily I got it. Uh, they told me with my 11 years as a cop under my belt, if I didn't raise my hand for New York, I'd probably sent, be sent to an Indian reservation somewhere oh. because, you know, I have the street experience, the arrest experience, and I could hit the ground running on a two or three agent, uh, resident agency there so so i said new york so for seven years two hours up two hours back every day uh i people love that good
0: memories too, i'm glad you mentioned that people should understand you listen your listeners should understand that indian reservation work was the most dangerous work in the bureau and and they yep. had a lot of problems yeah. staffing it. nobody wanted to go to indian reservations because you were more likely to get killed on an Indian reservation as an FBI agent than you were in inner city New York or Detroit or Chicago because it was that dangerous. Number one, you're out there pretty much on your own. Um, there's very little backup. You're working with maybe one partner. Um, and and it was just the Wild West and, and stuff. And so people, you know, I remember seeing one time uh, Durango, Colorado, in Men's Journal had it as one of the nicest places to live. But there was an RA there. There was a small FBI office there with three agents assigned, and nobody wanted to go there. It was actually a hardship office at that time. And it was a hardship office because 90% of the work was Indian reservation work. Um, And that's why they wanted cops with street experience to go to those places because they were extremely dangerous places to work.
2: Well, we lost two agents, Kohler and Williams, out in the Dakotas uh, with Leonard Peltier in the late 70s. For just that, what you just said, Bobby, exactly what you just said.
0: Yeah. No backup. They were ambushed. They were slaughtered. Um yep
2: they were executed,
0: yeah executed yeah.
1: totally and, and he's he's a cause celeb to this day that was one of the earliest days of when law enforcement was uh uh was just you know insulted back then by and there's still actors and 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 celebrities that are are singing his praises um Abu Jamal in Philadelphia, who killed uh-huh. a guy I knew Danny Faulkner in the yeah. in the early nineteen eighties a Philly police officer but uh Anyway, so we're getting kind of away from that. But Bobby, you uh, you moved back. Were you still living in Long Island? Did you go to the uh, twenty six Federal or the LIRA? Where did you no, wind but up? What I was,
0: I, I you know, in typical New York fashion, I uh, as soon as I had the official paperwork in my hand, um, I went to my basically it was called FOAC, was Field Office Administration and Communication. That was the class. My FOAC instructor was a former New York agent, and so I, I who who was kind of a really kind of guy that you knew had connections all over the place, and so I went to him at lunch one day and I sat in his office. And I go, look, because again, people should know that when you first go to New York, you were going to get to an applicant squad and, and nobody wants to work applicants. It's like interviewing and you're not really doing, you're not arresting anybody. So the, the, the game was to avoid applicants if you could. So I went to this guy uh, and said, Hey, look, I'm a New Yorker. My dad and brother cops, you know, I'm going back to New York. Is there anything you can do for me? And he immediately picked up the phone and he called my, an ASAC named Jules Bonavalanta. and, um, <laughs> and I said, as old as I am, Jules' son, I think, was the SAC in Boston recently or something. So mm-hmm. that's his son. So I, my ASAG. So he picks up the phone and says, "Hey, Jules, I got this guy. He's a New Yorker, you know." And so Jules, my first day, and I walk into Jules's office in Manhattan. And he goes, well, "You know, where are you from?" I go, "Long Island. I'm staying with my brother right now until I figure out where." He goes, "Oh, I have a I have a squad out in BQ, which was the Brooklyn Queens RA, the Metropolitan RA. They called it BQ MRA." Um, and he says, you want to work, um, the mafia? And I said, oh, I'd love it. You yeah, know, of course, you know, and so I was put, so there was a Long Island RA, which was much smaller. There were less openings there, but I got right into the Queens RA, um, which by the way, was bigger than most field offices in the FBI, just the RA was, um, yes. so I got on an organized crime squad targeting the Lucchese crime family, um, at the time. So I cut my teeth on wiretaps and informants, you know, the mob, the typical mob stuff that you'd see in movies. And
1: uh, walk us through that. Uh, there's five families in New York, Luquese being one of them, Gambino, Bonanno, who are the other two? I'm drawing. Palombo uh, and Genovese. There you go. And uh, a lot there's of murders.
0: To in- each one. There's a whole squad, normally FBI and NYPD. So my squad was FBI, NYPD task force. Um, two of the squads, the Gambino and Luquese were out in Queens. The other three families were squads were in Manhattan. Um, and so each squad had a family. Now, there was a lot of interplay. So we, we knew everybody under the other. Our sister squad was the Gambino squad out in the RA. They were the Gotti squad, which was the Gambino family. And at that time, Gotti had just taken over the family, he had just killed Paul Castellano at Spark Steakhouse. And so, for, so it was a real hot time for organized crime. Sammy I mean, the Bull, you know, all of this stuff was happening while I was there. One of my first assignments, I remember, was sitting in a conference room redacting, which was taking a black pen and getting rid of names and addresses and phone numbers uh, for Martin Scorsese's assistant because they were in the final stages of a, of a script for Goodfellas. So Goodfellas, the movie, um, was based on my squad. So Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta in the movie, Henry was a, an informant on my squad. Um, he was pinched by C-13, which is the Colombian drug squad downstairs. And then they said, hey, we got this mafia guy. We don't know what to do with him. He was working with the Colombians. Do you want him? And, of course, we took him. And then we ran with him. We put Henry back into the family and, and stuff. And so Henry was a big. So what you saw in the movie, they changed the names of everybody except Henry Hill. Um, I don't know why. But um, so Paul Solvino was the head of our family. He played a guy named Paul Ivarrio, which was really Vic Muso in real life. But um, so what you saw in the movie Goodfellas was kind of the, what? I was doing. Eddie Maloney, who was the U.S. attorney, at the head of the strike force, the organized crime strike force at the time, uh, is actually in the movie. He plays himself in yes. this movie. And, yeah. So, um, so that's what I did. You know, wiretaps, following wise guys around, working informants, the traditional, you know, great. up. We, we had dictation machines. We did not have computers on our desks. We had reel-to-reels, the old uh, machines. Yeah. We reel-to-reels with the pedals that you, you could listen to. <laughs> And stuff. Yeah. The pedals a backup. And uh, yeah, so that was really a great way. And it, my partner was a, was a detective, an NYPD detective. And um, it was a great couple of years just learning the job from old timers who most of the old timers that I got broken into at that time um, got their uh, creds directly from Mr. Hoover um, because they were old enough to have come in in the late sixties. Um, and nice. now it was the late eighties.
2: I have two questions for you, Bobby. Number one, whatever happened to henry hill
0: henry you know? um well i think i know he passed away i think i mean he was he, he was around he made the he was on howard stern he was like a regular on howard stern for a while and i mean he became like a mini celebrity out there i mean he wasn't i don't know why or how he did it. henry was a bit of a character and stuff and so mm-hmm. he was very um you would think in a guy in witness protection uh would do a, a better job at laying low but he he didn't Care after a while, I guess, and I, I used to hear him on on Howard Stern and roll my eyes. and say, Henry, what are you doing? Um, but I think, <laughs> I think I I, I, sh- I, sh- I should confirm that. I kind of want to say it if he's still alive, but I think I think he passed away now. Uh, and
2: number two, did you ever get a chance to work with your brother?
0: Yes, uh, on two occasions because my brother went on the PD in 1980, so he was a couple years ahead of me, and in 85, 86 crack basically exploded in new york city and so the crack was out of control and you know like everything else in law enforcement we kind of play catch up when something new comes along and so the pd uh out in queens because queens is where it really it took off um manhattan was still mainly heroin but crack really sprouted up in queens and so they they formed what was called the 101 crack unit 101st you know like airborne and stuff 101st crack unit so my brother got assigned there and then i was doing a couple of drug cases downstairs with the in the ra with the uh Call me a drug squad just because there's a new guy. You want to do everything you can on all the squads, you know. And so right. my, boss, my boss would let me do that. And and, of, and so there were a, two that I remember, two particular. One of these roundups, you know, the 300 person roundups and stuff. And it was jointly with the PD and stuff. And so um, where, we should take them
1: over. Take them over to the Brooklyn Armory, right? That's where we would uh, process them. Yeah, on.
0: or yeah, Fort Hamilton, and yeah, 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 yeah. And so and so like like there were two where like my team and my brother's team. They weren't a task force, but they were married up because this big thing, everybody had to kind of, you know, send people and stuff. They were two different ones of these big, massive roundups where my brother and I literally were kind of going up the stairs together and uh, and going through a door together. It was it was pretty fun.
1: That's
2: cool.
0: Nice. That is nice.
1: Uh, now, at some point you um, you move from the. Sort of Italian mob to the Caribbean mob, right? Jamaican
0: uh, gangs? Yeah, Jamaican posse. So, uh, a couple of years into the work in the mob, believe it or not, um, it was a little slow for me because, you know, those those guys were really slow. And, and, and I was like, I was, look, I, I came on the bureau, I was 24. And so, if it was the second youngest of my class, the average age of my academy class was 29 and a half. And so, I was young, I was single, I was, you know, living in New York. I wanted to go, 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 go. And so, so word comes down one time uh hey they're forming this new squad unfortunately it's in manhattan but it's going to be really fast paced they're going after these non-traditional organized crime groups jamaicans asians all these different gangs and stuff and it was supposed to be like one of these really kick-ass squads so i i said you know what it's time for me to try something new and i and i raised my hand and i got assigned to the squad it was in manhattan which i wanted to go back to headquarters anyway because i i think it was i was missing a little something not going there first You know, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know a lot of the office people because I was out in the RA and stuff. And so it gave me a chance to go back into Manhattan. Again, I was single. I didn't care about the hours. I was, I I would work 18 hours a day and be happy with it. You know, I was, you know, partying and stuff. And, um, and so I got on this squad and I just fell into, I had another NYPD detective, second grader, Tommy Bruno, an amazing detective, learned a ton from him. And, um, and him and I went out to Brooklyn, where he used to patrol when he was in his uniform days, and uh, he taught me the streets. He taught he introduced me to guys in the precincts and informants, and, and we just rock and rolled. And um, over the next 10 years, I worked Jamaican posses. I became the FBI's leading expert in Jamaica. They sent me to Jamaica. They sent me to the UK. They sent me to Canada. Um, I testified before Canadian Parliament. Uh, as a expert, because they were fashioning their own version of RICO, and that's what we were doing in Eastern District of New York, the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. I was turning one RICO case after another. My first indictment, I was three years in the Bureau, four years in the Bureau. I had 54 people indicted in one indictment. Um, we did 36 search warrants in one night, um, most of them in Brooklyn, but also Albany, New York, and Dallas, Texas. We took down this huge case. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite a – so that was my – Kind of my rock and roll talk we were doing two or three warrants drug drug search warrants a week um it was it was really it was really a fast paced thing it's really what I was looking for um and, and that was that was some of the fun that was really some of the fun stuff
1: bobby on the on the right next to the bank robbery squad c nineteen was c nine the fugitive squad and remind me there was a guy I think he was uh Jamaican by birth mm-hmm. I forget his name, but I think when some of these wires and I'm sure you got the language down before long. But yeah. This guy, you'd hear some of these wires, uh, meaning, you know, the uh, wiretaps, if you will, uh, recording these phone calls. And he would listen to them. Oh, yeah, he means this. He means that. Do you, do you remember who I'm uh, speaking was, of? Was it Billavan? Billavan Johnson? No. There was
0: two guys. There was two Jamaican-born agents, Billavan Johnson and Wilford Baptiste.
1: Um, Wilford, yes. Yeah,
0: both of them were, were Jamaican-born agents. Um, Billivan actually wound up being my undercover for a long time. Him and I really got along well together. Um, and and he was a great undercover. Um, we we put him with the mob. We put him with the Colombians, and everybody bought him. He was literally born and raised in Jamaica, so he was the real deal. I mean, you couldn't, you know. We would have wiretaps on the Italians, and he would meet with them and leave. And Billy was the most gentle guy you'd ever meet. I mean, he was. But he yeah. when he turned it on. It happens. He turned it on, and that's what editing's all about. And can I still go? Yeah. So so he he was the most gentle guy, but when he turned it on in his persona, we would have the attack him leave. And then we would listen to the Italians and they were all afraid of him. They were like, man, that guy's killer, you know, like, and it was just Billy. We knew Billy as, as this gentle guy. Um, and then, um, yeah, we did Island green, which was a joint case with, um, Miami division. Andy bland was the case agent down in Miami. And, um, And we did uh, cocaine for green cards. One of those cocaine for green cards, we indicted 119 people where they were bringing in um, cocaine and and trading them for green cards. And we were giving them temporary green cards over the course of a year. And then when we we were going to bring them in for the real green card, um, that's when we took the whole case down. And um, I remember from like seven in the morning we had a whole suite of rooms on one floor in the holiday inn at JFK airport and they would come in one after the other groups in small different groups would come in and three and four guys at a time and we had this suite we had um the tactical team was in the it was in the bedroom of this suite they would come in they'd give us the cocaine we'd give them their final green cards and we take freezing up a little bit you good there Bobby yeah I'm good you hear me
2: okay yep little freeze there but
1: that's right that's what editors are for we have great producers
0: we had this whole system set up where we we um, we'd take them down in the room and then we'd shove them across the hall and process them. And then we had a team in the parking lot, a team in the lobby and the teams upstairs. And they were coming in like they were scheduled all throughout the day. It was like amazing. Um, and of course, you get these little hiccups. You know, we didn't know. Sometimes there were guys that would arrive with their kids. And so we'd lock them up. And then we had to have two agents get a different room on a different floor. And this is how the, the funny thing, you guys appreciate this story. So a different floor, I had to get two agents to just babysit the kids, right? So we got six or eight kids, you know, ranging age from five to 10 or 12. And at the end of the case, it's my case, right? So I'm doing all this stuff. And the end, like a month later, I'm dealing with the hotel receipts and they rented like six or eight movies during the course of the day, Disney movies to keep the kids. Well, I got somebody at finance at headquarters saying, we're not paying for new rentals. <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, well, you don't understand. Like, They gave me such a hard time. It was months before I could get payment for the movie rentals because they were Disney movies. I mean, you don't understand. They had kids in the room. We didn't know what to do with the kids. We couldn't call social services until the end of the day. You know, And, and it was just one of those typical bureau stories where like finance was not going to pay that bill, not pay the, the extra money for the – for the. I had to get all kinds of approvals, SAC approval, and, and it was just a round and round and round. That's great. It was was just one of those crazy
1: things. It's it's better they were Disney movies than porn movies for adults you were trying to get reimbursed for. (laughs) Because we all babysat those guys who wanted to keep busy at night. And uh, you had to justify those bills. Now, Bobby, you're a kid from Long Island, New York City. Uh, You're busy with school, law school. We're going to segue a little bit. Somewhere you got into scuba diving. Uh, Did it start out as a personal thing? Yeah. And you're you're a master now. You teach it around mm. the world. Um, and this guy founded the FBI dive team. We're going to get into that. But how did it all start with you from New York City?
0: I was a recreational diver. Um, I took a class in college because it was three credits and it was, you know, fun and stuff. And stuff. And then, uh, you know, I started diving in the Caribbean, you know, in New York, you know, you just thought you go, you you get, you join a dive club and then you kind of Maybe dive around Jersey. Jersey is temp is very challenging diving because a lot of shipwrecks, but they're deep and they're it's tough diving. If you want, most of us that dove in those areas, we dove really easy stuff, and then we would go to Caribbean a couple of times a year with forty, fifty people from a dive club. You'd all go into one of these big resorts and you'd spend every day diving. Um, so you would dive a little bit during the summer, and then you'd usually have one or two big vacations during the year where you'd go to the Caribbean and dive. That was my extent of my diving. And then in nineteen ninety five or ninety six. The FBI New York office had pretty much the only sanctioned. There was some other diving in some other offices, but it was the only sanctioned dive team in the FBI. And um, and it was in, the if you remember, our Special Operations Division. New York had an SOD, um, and uh, Calstrom was the, the the leader of it then. And then so it was all tech guys. It was all TTAs. It was a very quiet, very, you know, under-the-radar type of team. Um, but they got so busy that in 96, 95, they opened it up to the criminal division, and they they were very hesitant because they were the cat was going to get out of the bag. They basically doubled the size of the team. It used to be six just TTA's, um, with a little gig, and then they opened it up, and then they brought in me, my myself, uh, Brenda Hack, um, Mike Tim's, a bunch of other criminal people, and we went in, on to the the dive team, and then because they got so busy, they needed us, and then throughout the late '90s, it kept getting busier and busier and busier, um, but. You know, I got on the team in 95 and a year later um, we were down in Atlanta diving in Lake Lanier for the rowing events because they had a 20,000 person stadium built on the water. And stuff. and so the substructure went down 40 feet into the water. So we would have to dive it and search it and make sure nobody planted any bombs on it and stuff. Um, But half the team was down there two weeks early and doing practicing. And then I was scheduled to go down um, Friday night, July 19th was the opening ceremony of the Olympics. So I was scheduled to go down Thursday. Well, Wednesday night, July 17th, 1996, TWA flight 800 explodes off the coast of Long Island. It was a 747 uh, bound from JFK to uh, Paris, um, but only about half full. Um, it was grounded. It was delayed leaving New York, very hot, humid July night. They had the air conditioners pumping to keep the, uh, keep the passengers comfortable. And when they finally took off, they got to about 13,000 feet and they, they frayed hey, Bobby.
2: Yeah, Bobby, can we can we stop you there? We're kind of running out of time on this segment. And I want to bring you back and talk about that. I think this is a great place for us to do that. And then we'll come back next week. So I want to thank you for sharing this incredible career with the FBI with with us, Bobby. And we're going to be signing off here. And I want everybody that's listening to, to to subscribe to Cold Red podcast and follow us all on the Cold Red podcast social media platforms at colredpodcast.com we'll see you next week and we're going to have bobby come back take care everybody